Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they aim to live in their values, and they sometimes geek out whenever they see red pandas, or that they unapologetically share pictures of goats with their mentors. Neither last one is just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, keep sharing this podcast with your pals and even those who grind your gears. Each listener gets us closer to an ad sponsor, which means your good old goat-loving pal Ben won't lose money on this project. I think this interview has some beautiful, vulnerable moments about a topic we often skirt around, death. Nothing is graphic, but I wanted to let you know in case you weren't in the mood. If you aren't, you can skip to about halfway through the episode. Our guest today is a mentor to me and many others. As you will hear, she is wise beyond her years and full of intentional spirit and heart. She also loves red pandas. Today's episode is with the lipid detective herself, Judy Simcox. Judy, thanks for being on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you, Ben? I'm doing fantastic and amped up. I'm glad you're here. Like always, I'm going to start with a few questions about you. Would you mind giving us your name and the pronouns you prefer? Yes. uh, My name is Judy Simcox, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Fantastic. And would you mind giving us a physical description of yourself? Yes. I'm about 5'10". Long brown hair, brown eyes, uh, tan skin. And lastly, the positions and roles you have on UW-Madison's campus. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry. I also have an affiliation with Nutritional Sciences and Endocrinology. So the harder question, I think, for everybody is how would you explain your research in about two minutes to friends and family? So typically what I say is I'm interested in a molecule called a lipid. And so you've probably heard about lipids in terms of your blood. So if you go to your doctors, uh, there are all sorts of different lipids, including cholesterol, triglycerides, things like that, that we measure to assess your health. But if I took your blood and I ran it on our instrument uh, called a liquid chromatography mass mass spectrometer, what I would be able to see is that there's over a thousand different lipids that we can name and over 4,000 potential lipids total. And we don't know the identity of the majority of them. And so that's what my lab tries to do is we try to figure out what those lipids are, what they're doing and how they're regulated like a lipid detective. That's, I I love that. I've uh, also been called the lipid lady, um, but I like lipid detective a lot better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A little weird taste with lipid lady. Yeah, I mean, it. <laughs> I think it has like an aura of um, finality, though, because if you're the lipid lady, you're almost like the fat lady, which I think is how they used to describe operatic solos. So, right, it's not over until the fat lady sings. Yeah, I was imagining you're just walking around and like covered in oils and fat. Yeah, that's a lot grosser. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah yeah so like a lipid lady emerging out of like a giant lipid vat yeah i will take lipid detective any day so yeah yeah. much better you get a badge with that one okay so i'm gonna get to that how you got to that point in your life but first i would like to go back and i ask everyone this who was your first crush yeah um so growing up my parents really liked the show mash and I genuinely thought Alan Aldo was so funny and handsome. I just thought he was just the bee's knees. Um, so I guess, <laughs> I guess Alan Alda, uh, which is perhaps uh, perhaps a little too old for me, but he's he's actually a really great science communicator now. He is. I've, I've looked at his programs a lot and thought about like, oh, maybe I should go that direction. So great that he was, you know, nice and handsome. And also still great for our field. It was it was his mind and his wit that really got me. And he was always, I don't know, he was like a jokester. So he was always playing tricks on everybody. Um, and he just, you know, actually that's <laughs> in some ways uh, what brought me to my husband was he's a really, he's really funny and he's like a natural prankster. And so I'm just at this exact moment, I'm realizing I'm like, that and that was like I knew I would be laughing forever with Jeff, but now I'm like this is going back to my very first crush, <laughs> and kind of what brought me to that person. <laughs> Guests have said this podcast is a great way to reflect, but probably not in the way where you're realizing that you've been chasing Alan Alda like all of your life. So when how old were you when you're watching Match? Oh, we watched it for a very long time, um, probably from the age of that I remember, probably from five until eight. So, yeah, it was. But yeah, I just thought he was I thought he was so dreamy. <laughs> and like at age five and eight, were you also starting to become interested in science or like the natural world around you? Yeah, that actually didn't happen until I was probably, actually, it was right around when I was seven. Um, So my sister, Jan, is a year younger than me, and she was born with Down syndrome. And uh, right around the age of six, she started developing type 1 diabetes. And I was absolutely fascinated (laughs) with her glucometer. And I think also so that she wasn't scared of it, um, my mom encouraged me to check my blood glucose. um, And she also allowed me to take Jan's blood glucose because she can't take it for herself since she has Down syndrome and also give her insulin shots. Um, But what I loved was I would seriously, I'd eat like a bunch of ice cream and then check my blood glucose or I'd like check it in the morning. I was obsessed with like figuring out, well, how does this change? Um, And it wasn't until I was, I think, maybe 12 or 14 that that really led to my first scientific question um so my mom is a nurse um, and she was a nurse for special olympics at the time and so of my sister's 12 friends who had down syndrome four of them had type 1 diabetes as well and type 1 diabetes is actually really rare it's about uh i think it's about 0.25 percent of the population and so, and we're talking about like 25% of this popu- this tiny population that I'm interacting with having uh, type 1 diabetes. And so, I thought it was really strange. Um, and so, there was a high school report that I think it was uh, titled, Ask a Question About the World Around You. And I asked this very specific question, which is, why is type 1 diabetes so prevalent in people with Down syndrome? And what I found was, yes, indeed, it is really common. And this has been something that's been well documented. It 
differs in its abundance based on different populations, um, but it is, it's well established uh, that there's this connection. But what also fascinated me is that there is no confirmed mechanism of why these two uh, diseases are related. And so, and that's really what I think of science is science is asking questions that have no answer. And that was the first time I asked a question that it turned out didn't have an answer. Um, and I think that's kind of weird because a lot of the ways we teach science in school are so focused on a memorization. And that's, that's totally opposite of what we as scientists do. I mean, we have to know facts to understand a field and to understand our results in the context of a field. But really, I mean, science is, is about asking the unknown. And so that was, that was the first time. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, you know, a huge part of why this podcast exists to show one, we have like these natural interests, but also we are just trying to come up with answers to these unknowns that we have in life. Did you have that continuation in like human health and metabolism through middle school and high school as well? So in middle school and high school, yes, um, I was just fascinated by how kind of the body worked, but I was also fascinated by the environment around us. Um, the other thing that brought me to science is just I love the outdoors. I love hiking, fishing, and I yeah, and that brings you to looking inside of organisms and really looking inside of environments and kind of breaking them apart and seeing how they function. Did I mention Judy likes red pandas a lot? Maybe too much. Did red pandas also come up like middle school, high school? No, red pandas were like more a birth of actually the video age because there's so many videos of red pandas being adorable, like playing in the snow or like tackling one another, like trying to scare other red pandas. And I just find their behavior to be so just adorable um and it's just so yeah i just i like i like their personality they're they're another personality that i like i feel like i can resonate with red pandas a little bit like no matter what they do they're going to be cute and not intimidating and i feel like i just have that personality too like if just if someone sees me on the street they're not gonna be like i'm scared of that guy they're gonna be like that guy is probably gonna give me like a piece of fruit if i ask him for it um, and yes, some friends have also said like, that's their first interpretation of me too. Yeah. I would, I would never have been scared of you. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I suppose I'll be the red pandas of the human world. Um, so when you were in high school, like thinking about transitioning to college, did you know science was going to be like your path or did you feel like you had to try out different things to make sure? Yeah, so for me, it was really, and I think this is something that happens with a lot of people. I actually didn't know what science was. Um, like, I didn't really know it was a career. I didn't know scientists. And so I went into it as kind of what I knew, which is my mom was a nurse. And so I was thinking, oh, maybe I could be a nurse. Maybe I could be a doctor. Maybe I could study medicine. Um, and so it was really a this kind of there's a joke about how all high school students either want to be uh, doctors, nurses, teachers, or lawyers, and it's because that's what they know. And so what they're really saying in that case is, I'm probably going to college, but they have no idea what they're doing. And that's okay. You should like, it's fine to not have any idea what you're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, how we're taught about science as well, because we're memorizing a lot of facts. We see that as just known knowledge and we don't understand how we got to actually know that and how that it's all done by scientists. Yeah, no, I had I had no idea. I think somebody once asked me, like, what was the first who was the first scientist you ever heard of? And I genuinely can't. I was probably like Einstein or something. And the stories of him are kind of legendary where it just seems like he just thought of E equals MC squared out of the air, out of nowhere, instead of really understanding that he he had like this long field of study. He worked in a patent office. It was it was years and years and really outstanding colleagues that kind of pushed him. But but you hear about like that mythical sense and the way scientists are portrayed in movies is so hokey. And I think one of the nice things, at least as much as I know about Einstein, too, like he never thought of himself as a legend. Yeah. And I, I also think he was kind of the product of the time, too. I mean, when you think of it, it like that was the that was like one of the golden ages of physics. And there was just so much being known and understood. And so I think certain times are certain times because you've you, there's so many peers really hammering um, and really brilliant minds. And so that's also what we're missing is like, who were Einstein's peers? What were they finding? And if you dig into the story, this is actually, sorry, this is a side note. Uh, you should probably cut out. Don't tell me what to do, Judy. But one of my favorite podcasts is from, it's called Nature Past Casts. So it's from nature, but they go into like the history of their like, their biggest articles. And so they go into one of Einstein's papers, which was published in Nature, and talk about uh, light curving around, uh, curving around uh, with uh, large objects and gravitational forces and how that was shown. And it's, it's just such a beautiful story about how war impacts science and how monkeys steal equipment. And um, like, it brings like the humanity to what we think of as a single standout discovery and really it's the it's the proof of his theorems you're probably exploring around in different science classes during your undergrad finding that might be a little bit more of your alignment and path were you also involved with other organizations um in like in high school uh it could be high school or in undergrad yeah, so in high school, I was into all sorts of things. Um, I was in speech and drama. I did a lot of barrel racing. I worked Pause. a what? lot. What is barrel racing? <laughs> it is a competition in rodeo uh, where the rider basically... Uh, on their horse uh, go through a series of obstacles, so actual barrels in a rodeo stadium that you uh, weave through. And then you, uh, and so you're going for speed, accuracy, and um, yeah, it just takes a lot of time where you have to really know your horse. And it also takes a lot of time because we had to, um, to be able to afford that. I had to shovel stalls in the morning before high school. <laughs> so it was a, a lot of work, uh, but it was also fun. And I got to know myself really well um, in terms of being able to, you can't lead. Uh, you can't lead anyone and you certainly can't lead a horse if you don't have some level of confidence and understanding of like what your goals and objectives are. And so it taught me a lot about taking the reins. So easy. 
and <laughs> and really um, just commanding myself. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and you're just gonna gloss over that. Real it quick. is. <laughs> It's hard because there's a lot of things that were really common where I grew up that I'm finding out were not really common in other places. So that was actually a lot of kids I knew did 4-H and we we did show and we did uh, barrel racing and other things, raising goats. Heck yeah, goats are the best. Maybe that's your favorite animal. (laughs) And and you grew up in Utah, if I'm not mistaken. No, I grew up in Montana. Montana, that's right. Yes. Okay. But then you went to school in Utah. Correct. Yeah. I grew up in a tiny town in Montana called Huntley, Montana, which is less than 500 people. Um, And I got bused into school in Billings, which is the big city. And that's where I went to high school. And I cut you off. I had to figure out more about barrel racing. What other organizations were you interested in in high school? Um, We did a lot of uh, volunteer work when with my family. So uh, we volunteered a lot with Special Olympics. Um, We also volunteered. um, We volunteered at the food bank and also at homes for um, unwed mothers, which I think are just women's shelters now. Um, But the the one we were at was specifically for. of a group living situation where women could uh, kind of learn to take care of their newborn children with other women with newborn children. Cool. And did you continue? I mean, some of those connections probably have to stop between high school and undergrad, but did you find new groups? Did you continue on? I guess I found other things. Um, In college, I ended up volunteering for hospice quite a bit. Um, and helping people in their transition, um, which actually was connected. I, in high school, I worked uh, as a CNA for an Alzheimer's dementia unit. So I, I don't know, I'm just fascinated by, I guess, like these transitions of life and um, kind of our connection to life, death, birth, and how they're all the same. But yeah, it's, I mean, you, it's hard because so... I did have to give up a lot of things, including barrel racing, but... Um, and this is kind of a speech that I give um, to graduate students is that to become a scientist, you do have to give up a few things because you're becoming something and you can't necessarily stay the same person with a stay, same time investment in all the things to become something new. But you should never give up something that you value. And so I it was one of those things that it was a very conscious decision where, you know, I loved the connection I had with my horse. Um, I now have those same connections with my dogs that I go running with every morning. Uh, but it was one of those things that it, to become a scientist, uh, that was one of those things I chose to give up and I, I do not regret it. It was just, it was, but it was because it was an active choice. As you're saying, like you started to become a scientist undergrad, were you working in labs at the time to get some experience? Yes, I worked in the same lab from the time I was a freshman until I was a senior in college. Um, and but I also worked as a, I guess a. So that was my that was my basic research uh, internship. But I also had a paid internship where I was a TA for uh, microbiology. And then I had a job waitressing as well. But I do like you're able to, you know, balance your science with also volunteering and getting the human side. And I imagine 
having both those perspectives just enhanced um, your work in, in both, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had kind of a unique situation where I, for the hospice patients I uh, visited, they they both lived actually longer than was expected. Um, they, <laughs> I think they started calling me like the like the lifeline or something because they're like you're the opposite of the angel of death because we there was another volunteer who like whenever she would go in her for a new patient like they die in like two weeks but for me like they would live for like two years and I I mean yeah I had I had such great connections with them and we would uh, read and it also kind of reminded me of how short everything is um, because when you're when you're sitting there with somebody who is actively at the end stage of their life, um, you start realizing. I mean, you start realizing kind of what a gift it is, because um, they were both patients that uh, would kind of revel in if we were able to go sit in the garden outside, um, or go like even having like the sunshine in from the window, like they or like new flowers brought in. They would enjoy like the little moments, and so it was it was kind of a nice balance um, in the sense that I learned I learned a ton from them. I've actually been reading a book that's also somewhat about death, and I've been trying to actually think about my own demise every couple of days, not in the way that like it's inevitable, but like you were saying, like to really value the moments that we have when we are making the future choices, you know, your transition from a high school to undergrad, you have to let go of some things to become something else. And what am I going to give up? What am I going to stay valued? And I think the idea of death being not exactly right around the corner, but it will happen is a great motivator to uh, really think about what you've had. Yeah. And I had, yeah, I had kind of a big reminder of that actually in one of my research mentors um, ended up passing away one of my undergraduate research mentors. Um, so he was a collaborator named Mike Shapiro um, and he worked at the university of Toronto as actually a grad student. He was very young, um, about 26. And we were, I was actually supposed to go do part of my project up at the university of Toronto with, um, some sequencing of these black fly larvae that I had been collecting and looking at their cytogenetics. Um, and so right before I was supposed to go up there, um, Mike ended up passing away and it was really shocking. Um, it was, it was hard for me because it was kind of the end of an era of, um, thinking like that I would go to this big research intern or in university and that I had lost somebody I looked up to, but it was also important because I realized when I think back on Mike, uh, I mean, his, his memorial was attended by, I think, 800 people. And part of it was just because he was like so alive. He was so enthusiastic about life. He played in a band and he taught spinning classes and he uh, was head of the Young Canadian Entomology Society. And he was just, I mean, he just lived life to the fullest. And he had like this really beautiful fiance that we, uh, and it was, it was just like, he was also the first graduate student I had ever met because uh, I went to a Chinese school. So 
um, getting to meet him at a conference and we stayed up and talked about science until like 2 a.m. just thinking about how we can move my project and collaborate and hearing about his life. It was the first time I could envision, well, I could do this. And then to have him pass away so quickly after that uh, that meeting was really impactful. And it also kind of brought in this idea of, well, life's really short, but what I value about Mike is that I don't, I think if he knew he was going to pass away, I think he would have done it all the same. I think he would have loved the same girl. I think he would have done the same science he loved. I think he would have done all the things. And he was he was the most alive person I've ever met. And I, I think about him all the time, actually, in terms of whenever there's like a really big transition. I think, well, how lucky have I been that... I've made it here and it's like, it's all such a unique privilege. And so I guess it's, it's nice to remember that yes, uh, things can be transient, but just because they're short doesn't mean they're not beautiful and wonderful and they should be appreciated. And not to like co-op that story, but I, I think that's another reminder I have for, for myself. If I was going to die at this moment, would I be happy with the life that I lived? And, you know, I'm 80% there. I think I'm getting to like the full 100%. But and I, and I imagine that was difficult for you. You you lost a mentor and also just like your success was probably depending on this person a little bit. Maybe it was really hard at the beginning. But like you're saying now, in a weird way, I don't want to say a silver lining. I don't know if you're like, I'm not putting words to this, but at least his his memory can be somewhat of a motivation appreciation. Yeah, I guess I would say, I mean, because I, I 100% think it would have been a thousand times better if I was able to like call him on the phone and chat about science um, because he was just, he was seriously just one of those like magnetic forces. Judy's right. Death sucks and no silver lining will fix that. We are awkward about death in our society and you can hear me struggle with it as I try to respond. I'm working on it just like everybody else. Like Brene Brown said, say awkward, brave, and kind. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I guess the story I take from it is that it is a good reminder. It's also, I actually have been talking about Mike a lot more during the pandemic, um, just one, because um, he died of myocarditis, which is caused, uh, which was, he had a really terrible flu virus. He thought he was better and he he exercised really hard and uh, just had just such a sudden, uh, sudden demise. But so I think of it in terms of that because COVID-19 has also um, really high rates of influencing myocarditis and blood clots. Um, But I've also been thinking about um, him and kind of that time and what it meant to me and how I, uh, from such a young age, started to kind of really put in together, well, I want to do science that's impactful. I want to do things that are meaningful. And kind of at each big step in my life, I stop and I ask myself, is is this worth it? Would I, if something happened, would I do this over again? And uh, usually, usually the answer is yes, or I choose the one that's yes. And so, yeah, I am curious about like your transition into grad school. Did you take time off in between or did you keep going all the way through? I actually had, I had to take time off in between. Um, so I, 
So, um, sorry, this is going to be a bit of a downer too, but it ends in a happy note. Um, but yeah, so actually I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps and um, I was going to teach at a girls' school in Africa, but I had some uh blood work and some tests that showed abnormal results and it turned out I actually had cancer um, and so I moved back home with my mom and that was such a difficult time actually because most people um, I don't want to say the privilege of uh, not having to tell people but you can choose kind of when to reveal it or um, you can process it a little bit but literally right when you're graduating from college everybody and all of your family is asking, well, what are you going to do? When are you leaving? And I had told everybody about this big adventure I was going on. And so suddenly I had to be very vulnerable with people and say, you know, I'm not going anywhere. I, and it turns out I have cancer and I have to seek treatment and I have to move back in with my mom at a time when all of my peers and friends were preparing to go to grad school. Um, and so the nice thing about this was uh, this forced vulnerability made me realize that um, like when I would tell people this, they would just be so open with me and they'd say, you know, I had cancer too, or my mom passed away from cancer, or they'd, they'd tell me about these really crazy struggles. And these were people that I knew. Um, and so I realized that kind of by putting on a front that I was okay and that things were wonderful and so great and everything was successful and I was doing all these things, it was forcing other people to kind of put on a mask around me too. So uh, that taught me that it's important to be vulnerable and it's especially important to be vulnerable with science. Um, the other thing that taught me though is kind of how much of my identity I had put into being a student and being something and what I was doing. And so I realized then that, so I got a job at an environmental um, chemistry company. And I, this is the first time I started running a mass spec. Um, and I realized that science and being a scientist is not it's not about being in school. It's not about a degree. It is about how you approach the world and the sense of questioning. And you can bring that scientific thought into anything. And so uh, it was a really important year for me to uh, kind of re-grasp what it meant to be a scientist. And I also got to take, um, I got to pause for a minute and do things that I loved again. I got to reclaim the joy of learning. So I got to take community college classes and just have a really good time. Um, it was, it was a, it was a good year. It was a hard year, but it's, it's also actually a year I think of in terms of students during the pandemic. Um, cause it was a year that I would not have wanted. Um, but once it came, I mean, it was, it was a moment I had to pause and reassess and think about what was valuable to me and what, who I was and stop, I stopped defining myself by things or situations or classes I was taking. Uh, I got to define myself on my own terms and really get back. It was kind of fortunate that I had to go back home because I, I got to kind of reconnect with who I am. And so it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. Um, it as good as it could be. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I really do appreciate you sharing that. And I don't think it's like a, 
bummer story. Like life, <laughs> life happens. And like you were saying, it's Great. so important to be vulnerable in science because like we were saying before, like a lot of the lens on science is producing facts and not about the people that are going through every single day, normal life with family members being diagnosed with cancer themselves, having kids, uh, losing people. And I just appreciate you sharing that story because it's just, it, you're sharing the human experience. And like you said, like if, if people can take off their masks for a little bit, it's going to resonate with them too. And I'm sure this will resonate with some of our listeners too. And I think too, I mean, I think it's not just part of the human experience. It's part of the scientific experience because to get to that point where you say, I don't know the answer, that is really scary. And until it's exciting and you, because you realize it's not that you don't know, it's that we as a community don't know. And then it's exciting. But it takes that first step of like, oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that. Um, yeah. And that's that's really when we get to uh, something in graduate school called preliminaries. <laughs> and really the purpose of preliminaries is not to, it's not like a weird gatekeeping experience. It's to push students to that I don't know place to get them to know the boundaries of their knowledge and also the boundaries of our knowledge. And this is actually something I wanted to bring up. So the audience does not know, but you sit on my committee and you are one of those people to try to get me to that I don't know spot. And one thing that I've always really appreciated about you um, you know, I'm a grad student who's also running a business, pretty self-driven and motivated, but I think you've always been able to say like, okay, Ben, you can still do more. When I go to other people and you have this plan, they're like, cool, that's pretty good. But you're like, so what? Like, keep pushing yourself. And I, I, I appreciate that because I think I can, I can skate by sometimes. And it's nice to have someone who's honest and be like, no, do more. I think it also has to do with you as a person because I I see great things for you Ben but it's it's just one of those things it's like it's like when you're in a race or something where you don't know how far or how fast you can go until you push it and so I'm just I'm just trying to push you because I I know you can run faster and further even if you don't know it yourself. Yeah, well I mean I also feel like with this pandemic I spent a lot of time it was similar to your experience is it's not a year that I want, but I have to reflect on those values and think about who I am as a person and especially a pandemic then plus graduating. It's like, what the hell am I doing in life? Um, did you find like when you were back home, you were starting to define your personality more on values versus just hobbies or activities? Um, yes, no, it was absolutely kind of, it was, I'm actually going to switch to, because I have a better value point. Um, so, okay. Because this is some of the best advice I've ever gotten from my graduate PI. Um, so, when I was a graduate student, um, and this was kind of like me putting together all of this uh, self-reflection, but when I was a grad student, my boss, uh, his name was Don McLean. He is so brilliant and wonderful, but he told me when I was applying for a grant, he said, I'm going to have you write your own letter of recommendation. Um, and it's not because I don't have time or I don't want to write it. He was like, it's because you need to start realizing that this is, you are 
with investing your time, you are defining how people see you and how people discuss you. And so he was like, you know, I can say that you are the hardest worker, but you need actual things that show that. And so what are the actual traits that show that you're a hard worker? And he was like, and so think about what you want people to say about you. And I'll teach you how to in, invest your time in those things. And I'll also teach you how to um, how to communicate that to audiences. And it was one of those really important things because I think most people, the way they write letters of recommendation, they like try to tailor it to something. But really, it was one of those moments where I got to say, okay, well, who am I? What do I value? And truthfully, the right award, the right job, it's going to align. You're not going to have to craft. I mean, you're going to have to change like the first paragraph and the last paragraph, but you will not have to craft like those big things because it's already going to be there. And that was really, that was important for me, both in choosing a career, but also kind of choosing, choosing like how to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to represent yourself to the world? If, especially if you have limited space, like yes. what, what are your priorities for you as a person? That's a good exercise. I'll have to do that too. Um, <laughs> I hope, I hope everyone that's listening also has a moment to be like, how would I actually do that? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's nice too, cause you, it can be a starting spot where if somebody was listening and they had a boss and they wanted to say, I really want to be seen as like a community driven person. So like just uh, the things that I put were that I wanted people to say that I was smart, hardworking, and that I was, uh, I had community driven science. And so the way that I learned to communicate that is through building, uh, building science programs that make science more accessible to people. And I started that as a grad student, but I, I don't think I would have probably started that um, without Don. And that also led me to seek out a lot of collaborations because that's one way you can also say that uh, you're community focused. You can uh, invest in uh, invest in projects with others. You can invest in people, all of these things. Once you were done with graduate school, did you, I think I saw you had like a, a couple fellowships, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So actually in my final year of grad school, um, so I went to grad school again, this is, you go into, you go into things with this, with an understanding of where you've been, not necessarily where you should go. Um, and so uh, after undergrad, the scientists I knew were my professors. And so I went into grad school with the certainty that I wanted to be a professor at a small liberal arts school. Um, and I knew that to get that job, um, I would need teaching experience. And so actually how I selected my lab was of all the rotations, I asked them a few questions. I was interested in all the science of all of them. But at the end, I said, if I, re I told them that I wanted to teach and I said, if I get a teaching position, will you support me in teaching during grad school? And Don was the only one who said, yes, of course. But I want you to have three papers published and I want you to have this uh, some extra mural funding. And I said, I can do that. And that's what I did. Um, but so I taught my final year of grad school, I taught at a small liberal arts college called Westminster in Salt Lake City, which was really fun. 
Um, the students there are really incredible. And I would say that 80% of my students were outstanding. Like I was teaching human genetics and they would bring in articles. This was right at the birth of CRISPR. Um, so they'd bring in articles about CRISPR. They'd bring in articles about um, different things they were learning in the world. And so it was really a fun environment. And so many of my students were outstanding. Um, but during that time, what I realized is that I really missed science. I missed being at the bench. I missed asking questions. And so I felt like it wasn't the right mix of research and teaching. It was too much teaching and I need both to be happy. And that's okay. Um, but I really respect the people, like the professors there were, I learned so much from, um, I had two mentors there, um, Christy and Brian, and they really taught me how to be a better teacher. Did they also help with you learning how to become a mentor as well? Yes, definitely. Um, so Brian, especially with now Chris, they were, it was just like the perfect team. So like if one of them wasn't in their office, I would go to the others, but yeah, it was, um, they helped me a lot in terms of giving, uh, really pushing me to empathize and listen to other people. And that's truthfully, mentorship is a lot about empathy. It's a lot about service and it's also a lot about pushing people, um, pushing people when uh, when they need to grow. And what I've come to learn in the past year and year or two is really you have to push them in the direction that's best for them and there's not a one size fit all model. Yes. And that's I think that is one of the hardest things. And one thing that you should take since I mentor you as your committee member, um, it is this sense that it's not about what I think they should do. It's about what they should do. And that is a reflection of who they are as a person and also the circumstances of the, of their lives. And I can't judge that, but I can give them advice and I can listen really well. Yes. I'm already catching myself thinking like, oh, I have the answers to this question you're bringing me. It's like, no, what do you think? What are our next steps? Like, let's throw you into the fire a little bit so you can fail but I'll help you get out of the fire and we'll talk about like the whole experience. Um, but I think like that's, I've found that method a lot more rewarding than just like, here's the next steps that you have to do. Um, Cause then you can see the growth. And I think also the person becoming more motivated and engaged with whatever topic that there is. Yeah. But it is, it is, it's super hard because sometimes I'm like, oh, I should just tell you the answer, but <laughs> <laughs> But they need to form they need to form uh, their own personal sense. And that's that's the point. <laughs> Not to say that this is like a whole perfect thing that we both do all the time. If it's like 4 p.m. on a Friday and they're coming to me for advice or like the next step, sometimes I might just like, here's a short thing. I need to go like plug my brain off for a little bit or unplug, I should say. Yeah. Or plug into plug into a different energy source. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Perfect. I wanted to ask you, as sometimes the relationship between uh, a mentor and a mentee can be difficult, especially if it's like their primary relationship. You, for for me, serve as a kind of a secondary mentor within my PhD committee, which is made up of five different mentors across different fields on campus. Do you have a like idealized role that you serve as as like a committee member i'm wondering if you also got advice because sometimes it can be super ambiguous there's a there's a difference between you know i actively sought you out 
And sometimes committee members are thrown on and the person who's being advised has no idea who this person is. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's really hard because on the different committees, you serve really different roles. Um, so, I mean, sometimes, sometimes that role is as just the expert in a field that the student's kind of branching into. And so really your, your role is making sure they understand the literature as they're going into something new. Sometimes uh, students choose you because something of your life's journey reminds, reminds them of themselves. And that happens sometimes where I will take more of a personal advising role where I'll get to listen to them as they're facing difficult decisions. Um, it's And then there's also kind of an in-between space where uh, you are pushing them to think about their career uh, during difficult times. And so I don't think there's, I, I would say that I play different roles on every single student's committee that I'm on. Um, there are certain questions that I ask almost all of my students, but uh, I'll save that for if you're dying to know, you have to invite me to serve on your committee. So I'll <laughs> save that for a select few. Ooh la la. Wow, what access I had. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been told that I'm like a really hard committee member, which I find funny because I think I'm not hard at all. Uh, Someone asked me of what it was like to have you on my committee this morning <laughs> and said like they had that reputation too. And I was like, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you just ask good questions. It's not like you're attacking people. It's the same thing for me. You're 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 pushing people to become better versions of themselves, whether that's like personal or within science. Or yes. Both. And some I mean, truthfully, sometimes, especially if it's a really outside of my field topic, sometimes I can be asking a question that seems deceptively hard, but it's actually really me being like, I have no idea what this field is about. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yeah. asking like a fundamental question. I'm like what organism is this? <laughs> and it kind of, I've seen that those questions actually throw students off quite a bit where they'll be, it's like an existential crisis. They're like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I've heard from a number of people that I'm a really, really difficult committee member. So maybe this podcast will spread that around. So if you don't want to challenge, I would, <laughs> I would not advise having me on your committee. evidently. <laughs> okay. But as you know, if you're into personal growth and development and want to become a better person, you know, reach out to Judy. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. That makes me feel better because I'm really not trying to be hard. I just, I just am. That's who I am. I'm just so hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sweating right now. I am, <laughs> I am dripping in sweat. I'm nervous at every single question. You seem totally relaxed. You're like a professional. I would not have guessed that. I'm making that up. I'm, I'm pretty relaxed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. you don't seem, you seem not phased. I think, you know, part of this journey of doing the science communication, kind of walking into it and through networking is just, you realize everyone's a human. And one of my favorite stories, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but what made me really want to start this podcast, I was talking to a scientist on campus about social media and they were just saying, like, sometimes I just have to post on Instagram while I'm on the toilet. And yes, totally funny story. But also it's just like everyone does that and no one says it. Oh, definitely. And to think of like, oh, someone who's got this Ph.D., who's gotten like lots of NIH money is well known. And still you're doing the same basic thing everyone else does. Like, 
people just have to know that. Yeah. Yeah. We're all just reading science articles on the toilet. So that's it. Yeah. And then once you know that's the key of everyone's life, then you're like, oh, why, why am I actually afraid of you? Like, yeah, you still have power over me for sure. Um, but I trust you. I try not to think of it as power. I think of it because I think of it as like, well, this is how I started thinking about it. Cause I also had a really tough committee, but it was really this kind of awe that there were like five experts in my field that were willing to take the time for me to help me make my project better. And so if you think about it in terms of we're working on this together, instead of like this person's challenging me or gatekeeping that that's not what I see my role as a committee member at us all. I see it as like a collaboration and part of that collaboration is scientific growth. The other part of that collaboration is personal growth. And yeah. And then I guess uh, I I provide the pressure cooker situation. Uh, (laughs) I think that everybody uniquely brings something to science because we've all got different journeys And so what you inherently bring, your unique perspective, the way you think, your neuronal connections, that is inherently valuable. Yeah. The last thing it just popped in my mind, too, to just say you're not like the pressure cooker. Um, In the beginning of these podcasts, I would. So I would sweat, but it was like fear sweat where it smelled really bad. You know, like I don't think I smelled that bad ever. I could walk into another room and no one would notice at this point. (laughs) So I have a a, uh, growth question for you and then we'll go on to our game because I also see a lot of potential in you, Judy, and I'm excited to see where your story goes. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh man, what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, If I could, I would be leading... I guess I would be leading large-scale diabetes initiatives um, to help people from underserved uh, backgrounds because uh, there is not a ton of, yeah, there's, we're really, I think we have a long ways to go for health equity. And I think that, I think science is a great avenue to kind of push that. So I guess, I guess that's where I would go if I, in my dreams. Cool. Yeah, I can see you doing that very easily. And I think you're, you're on that path, too, which is awesome. Yeah. No, let's keep going on the path that you, <laughs> yeah, keep going where you want to go and what doing what you want to do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going there. <laughs> don't worry. Well, Judy, like you said about me, I don't worry about you, too. The feeling <laughs> Thanks, is mutual. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so we're going to head on to our improvised game. And boy, do I hope this works. Um, <laughs> this so is nervous. a bit more ambitious. <laughs> So, first, I need a few things from you. Um, I need a lipid species. Sphingolipids. Sphingolipids. Okay. And Judy, where might sphingolipids reside in the body? If you had to pick one spot. I'm going to choose the fat, the adipose tissue. All right. And then I need two traits that you find annoying about people. I'm a person of like really specific annoying <laughs> okay so like when people are eating they like smack a lot with their teeth and their lips I find that exceptionally annoying I also find it very annoying you know what I'm gonna go with I really find it annoying when people are uh, tappers in like silent rooms or like pen clickers in silent rooms like testing rooms or yeah the the noise. 
I'm a little bothered by like eating and smacking of lips too, which wasn't always the case until I started hanging out with people who are annoyed by that. And then I started paying attention to it. And then now I'm annoyed by it. I think it's uh, for me, it grew, I grew, I have a, I, my siblings are constantly smacking their lips. Um, Cause we're, my family's really talkative. And so it's like, you're, t- you're talking and eating at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah. And your, your family follows you everywhere. That's, that's it. And especially like I'm, I'm a middle child, so I've got both the annoyance of older siblings and younger siblings. So they're all just from above and below eating and smacking their lips around me. Okay. Where is a destination for an errand? So it could be like blockbuster library, blockbuster, like this. Metcalfs. I was was like, okay. Are we, are we going to pull a time machine out as well? (laughs) I think there's one blockbuster left. Um, last time I heard. Oh yeah, in Oregon. We're not completely irrelevant. Um, and lastly, I need an object. Magic eight ball. All right. So here's the deal. We are two sphingolipids in some sort of adipose tissue. You are a sphingolipid who is always eating and smacking your lips. And I am a sphingolipid who is always pen clicking. And luckily I've got a pen with me right now in a quiet place in this <laughs> homemade bedroom studio and this is already bad i hate myself sorry i'm like i don't like my character i want my character to lose but keep going add or subtract as much as you need um so we are going to try to return a magic eight ball to metcalf's as lipids which is out taking a stroll in the adipose tissue we have to return the magic eight ball to metcalf's which is a grocery store in a minute or 30 seconds. And if we don't, we will be metabolized by mitochondria and used as fuel. If we get it done, then we don't die. But if we take more than a minute and 30 to stroll over there and return the match gate ball as sphingolipids, then we are oxidized to our demise. Okay, so we're trying to solve it together is what I'm getting. All right, here we go. Oh, hey, Donald, thanks for meeting up with me. Well, honestly, Sphingine, I really think we need to move a lot faster. I have really long hydrophobic chains that we can push this magic eight ball with so we can get it to Metcalf's. Why won't you collaborate with me? Why are you just sitting there clicking your damn pen and not focusing? Well, I'm with you. All right, I'm done. I apologize. Let's head over to Metcalf's. We'll walk over there. And luckily, we're taking this like nice stroll where we can see like some lysosomes. We can see like this mitochondria. But, you know, beware. We're not going to get too close. We don't want to go to our demise. But tell me, how are your kids? Well, unfortunately, I lost them to both the lysosome and the mitochondria last week. But I'm positive I will be able to produce some more. How about you? My kids are doing pretty well. Actually, uh, they're working in this Metcalf that we've just arrived on. We still have to return the magic eight ball. So hopefully we don't run into anyone who's wacky inside the Metcalf store. We're going to have to pass like the door handler who's going to ask us questions that we answer with our magic eight ball. Is that, <laughs> is, that is that where we're going with this? Hey, and welcome to Metcalf's on the magic reader. <laughs> and I would I would really like to know if. You're going to see your demise in the next about 10 seconds. Uncertain. Ask. Ask again later. 
<laughs> well, this is perfect. We only have five seconds left. Now, do you really think your demise is going to happen? Looks probable. And I don't remember what Magic 8 balls say. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Donald the Sphingolipid, you are right in that your time is done. And I've invited my friend, the mitochondria, to come and race. All you had to ask me was how do you return it? You didn't have to like indulge me in these questions, but I appreciate it. Well, I'm gonna make the mitochondria smack their lips while I'm while they're eating me. So, Metcalf Screeter, do I also have to go to my demise? Yes, yes, Fangy, you you also you think lived? You gotta go to your demise too. And with that, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I am so appreciative of you, Spingle Lipids, going to the cell and making some ATP for us. I hope you enjoy your uh, Sphingolipid eternity. Well, Judy, I so appreciate you being on the podcast with me. And thank you for your time and indulging me on this uh, strange improv journey at the very end. It was such a pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me, Ben. And uh, good luck. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I am absolutely fortunate to have Judy as a mentor. And I'd wager she gave you something to ponder as well during this episode. More exciting episodes are to come, and we are growing as a podcast. Keep spreading the word with friends and family, and we may just have something special in store for you if you do. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush is a production of Deeper Than Data Media. This episode was edited by me, Ben Rush, music by me, Ben Rush, marketing distribution and additional support by Devin Lorty and Lauren Schrader. Until next time, be well. Until the present, correct? That is correct. Um, that is correct. That is correct. Yes. Until the present, correct? That is correct. Um, that is correct. 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 I could just say, I smell great. <laughs>